Welcome to Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL, a new series from the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation. In conversation with thought leaders and change makers in higher education, nonprofits, and industry, we'll explore why Atlanta is the innovation capital of the Southeast. Welcome to Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL, brought to you by the Hantry Emory University Center for Innovation. Today's special guest is Sanjay Parekh, who is a serial technology entrepreneur. He is currently founder of Mirage Data, a startup focused on securing data to prevent data leaks, and co-founder of both Together Letters, a service for groups to share without using social media, and Edgewise, a marketing content creation company using podcasts as a content engine. He's also co-host of Tech Talk, y'all, a tech comedy podcast. Sanjay's startup journey began as the founding CEO of Digital Envoy and inventor of the company's patented NetAcuity IP intelligence technology. At Digital Envoy, Sanjay led the company to raise $12 million in angel and venture funding before it was acquired by Landmark Communications in June 2007. Sanjay then launched uh, Startup Riot, a conference for startups which pioneered the three-minute four-slide presentation format. Sanjay is an inventor on 12 issued U.S. patents and holds an electrical engineering degree from the Georgia Institute of Technology and an MBA from Emory University's Goizueta Business School. Sanjay, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So today's conversation is especially exciting for me because you're both a serial tech entrepreneur recognized as a thought leader uh, across Atlanta and beyond, and also a graduate of Georgia Tech and Emory. So today we'll dig into your many ventures and inventions, but I would like to start by noting that uh, Georgia Tech and Emory have recently announced several initiatives to more closely uh, work uh, across institutions with the goal of leveraging their complementary strengths to drive greater good in the region and the world. And in that context, I wonder if you could share your thoughts on the strength of each institution and how you feel each prepared you as an entrepreneur. Yeah, uh, so a great question. And, and it's been interesting and exciting to see this develop over time. You know, when the biomedical program started between Emory and Georgia Tech, uh, I just had very high hopes that that would continue to grow and foster that relationship. Um, and now we see, all, you know, like the bus connections that go back and forth and the, 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 the students going back and forth between the two campuses, which is fantastic. Um, and I think that cross-pollination of ideas is great. Um, for me personally, you know, so I got out of uh, Georgia Tech in 96, uh, and then I got out of uh, Emory with my MBA in 2006, so 10 years later. Um, you know, Georgia Tech was interesting for me. You know, I always thought I was going to be a computer engineer. I thought I was going to design uh, chips. Uh, and I actually had an offer from Intel to go work in Folsom, California. Um, but also being an engineer, I, I had an offer there and I had an offer here in Atlanta. And the offer here was for more money. And as an engineer, I can do math. And instead of moving across the country and getting paid less, I decided to stay here and get paid more. Um, and so, you know, my trajectory kind of kind of veered off. And so what was interesting, so back then, Georgia Tech really didn't prepare you to be an entrepreneur or anything else like that, right? Like the whole idea was uh, you become an engineer and you go get a job. Like that was the path, that, that, that's it. Become an engineer, go get a job. That, there was no other deviation from that path. Um, and so I did the whole, you know, career fair things and all that. And that's how I landed the, the, the offer from Intel as well. Um, but very fortunately, my, my first job out of college was at a very early stage company. It wasn't really a startup because it was a joint venture by two large uh, mother companies that had funded it with over $100 million. So, it, it, you know, not a normal startup, but I was very early on. I was like a number employee, uh, 20, uh, 20th employee there. Um, so, you know, I think the thing that Georgia Tech did give me, though, is that resilience and that ability to uh, take any challenge and know that it is, uh, you know, achievable and, and scalable and, and solvable uh, and not to give up. Uh, on the other side, you know, when I was doing my first startup, uh, I got to a point where I was tired uh, of working and I decided I needed to take a break. Um, and that's what led me to getting an MBA. And so I applied to a bunch of different schools. Um, Emory was a really natural fit for me. 
uh, because I did the one-year class. And so the one-year class is very small. Um, I think we were, I don't remember how many of us, there were 50-something, 50 52 of us. So, you know, a small cohort. We were in the same room, in the same seat for the entire summer, you know. And so you really got to know everybody else that was in that, that one-year cohort. I, I must admit, I don't know the two years uh, as well when we joined them that fall. Um, but, you know, that small size was really a good fit for me as well as kind of the focus on leadership uh, as well as servant leadership that we have in, in Guizueta Business School. And so those were really good fits for me because one of the things that I ended up focusing on a lot at my first startup was the organizational culture and, and really believe that a lot of success comes for organizations, especially startups, in the culture that you build and, and that drive that you have. You know, because not everybody goes to Georgia Tech and then realizes that all problems are, are, are solvable and, and achievable at some point. Um, and so if you can build that culture of, hey, we're going to do whatever it takes to succeed, then I think you have a, a winning organization. And it doesn't matter really the, the thing that you're trying to solve. So for me, that's what I got out of both of the educations. Uh, for other people, obviously, both of these organizations have changed in the many, many years since I've been there. So they're going to get different things. But, but that's what I got. So it's interesting that you mentioned what change has changed, because obviously Georgia Tech is now known as something of a leader in all of the sort of startup and entrepreneurship spaces they've created across campus programs. Uh, and uh, we work closely with them in part for that reason. One of the things that uh, that I would note then is that you you didn't necessarily find that startup culture you were looking for. But you point to um, to the need for kind of a startup cohort, some of the leadership skills you acquired along the way. And I think those tie back to some of the work you've done since your studies uh, in creating these sorts of startup environments and programs. And uh, if I understand correctly, you helped to found a really important startup program that serves the students of both of these universities and is a big uh, driver, really, of innovation in Atlanta, and that's CreateX. So I wonder if you could tell us about your role in getting that started and some of the success stories you saw come out of CreateX while you were associated with the program. Yeah, it was a really kind of a meandering relationship that ended up with me being there to help kind of launch this um, in that first year in 2014. Uh, so I got to know Steve McLaughlin, who uh, back then was the chair of the School of Electrical and Computer Engineering, which was my school when I was at Georgia Tech. Um, and I, I still vividly remember that first sit down that we had and we started talking about startups and entrepreneurship. And he, he was telling me that, hey, you know, I wanted to introduce you to this professor, Siva, uh, who's really kind of running this thing. But, you know, I just wanted to talk to you about entrepreneurship and what you believe. And we had this interesting conversation where, um, you know, I kind of proposed to him like, look, if you've got a student that uh, is doing something that they are excited about and could be a viable startup, why would it not be a great thing for them to drop out of school and go do this thing? Because his his viewpoint was like, no, no, um, we should never allow that. They need to get their degree. Um, it was a very academic, and and as a as a parent, I understand this too. It was, but it was a very academic focused view of like, what does success look like? And and for folks in academia, that's like you have to get your degree. Um, and if we see what has actually happened out in the world, that doesn't actually have to happen. And and there are examples even from back in my time, you know, with Chris Klaus uh, dropping out of Georgia Tech and starting ISS and then donating a bunch of money back and, you know, for a building with his name on it. And so that's what I, I said to Steve is that, look, it's, it's a win-win. If the student's startup fails, are you not going to take them back and they're going to come back to school smarter and better and understanding what they really want to learn with this energy of like, this is what I want to do because now I've seen how I failed and now let me figure out how I don't fail next time. Or they might not come back because they make a lot of money and they're successful and then they're going to give you some money for another building. So like either way from Georgia Tech's perspective, this is a win-win, right? Like it, it doesn't matter that they drop out as long as you support them along the way. Um, and I don't know if Steve has changed his mind on this, but that started the conversation. I met with Siva and then they asked me to come on board and, and be a consultant um, for uh, the for, I think it was the first two cohorts. So I was there in the summertime helping launch the program, um, working with all of the teams, uh, you know, because of my background uh, and kind of what I've done, I get really uh, into what all of these folks are doing. And, I, and I'm a big fan of learning 
uh, a lot of different things. Like back in the day, many, many years ago, I used to get a lot of magazines. I would read 30 to 40 issues of magazines a month um, of different magazines all across the spectrum uh, because I, I think the best way to solve problems is to take learnings from areas that are not your area and pull them in and make your solutions better. So that's how that all got started. You know, I think I've been fortunate to be able to be involved with some great companies. Like there's one out of the first cohort called Fixed, F-I-X-D, which is still going. They've raised no money. They are doing phenomenally well. Um, and it was two uh, juniors that came to us. Um, and it's interesting, their, their parents actually required them not to drop out. They said that they would not support them unless they finished and got their degree. But once they got their degree, the parents were all in. They've, you know, given them some bridge funding and stuff. And, you know, the business is going really phenomenally well. So these are students that have never actually had a, a quote unquote real job, right? They've always been working for themselves in the startup. And then the other one is from, I think, my third year in, in uh, 2016, Stored, um, S-T-O-R-D. Just a couple of weeks ago, they raised $90 million at over a billion dollar valuation, right? So five years in. You've got a billion dollar company coming out of this program. Um, it was a freshman that came to us after his freshman year to start this company. He pretended, Sean Henry, he pretended to go to school for another year and then he finally dropped out. And so this is exactly my point to Steve, right? How are you not happy about Sean finding his passion and finding this problem that is revolutionary and changing the world and creating a billion dollar company and all the jobs and economic progress that happens because of that. Like, yeah, maybe Sean's never going to come back and get his degree, but he's always going to appreciate that Georgia Tech is where he got his start for the first company that he did. Sure. Yeah, those are two fundamentally different paradigms, right? Um, so a couple of things in that answer that, that I really appreciated and I think folks in the audience will appreciate. One, this idea of drawing from different fields as you try to solve a problem, taking different approaches, different paradigms that you can find from elsewhere and applying them to uh, a situation outside of their, their normal context. So, uh, you know, one of the only truisms of innovation work is, you know, because studies will get written and disproven. And, but the one thing that seems to be almost universally true is that the more diverse the inputs, the better the outcomes. And that includes diversity of perspectives, paradigms, critical frameworks as you get started. Uh, one of the people uh, who I really admire in this space, who you may know as well as Rohit Bhargava, who curates the non Trends newsletter. Um, I just so happens I found out recently he was an Emory grad, which I never knew. I <laughs> first met him at South by Southwest. Um, so that I think is a perspective we may want to pick up uh, the thread on again. But there's another thing you said at the very beginning of that answer, which I love, which is you said, well, it's kind of a question of meandering relationships. And I love that turn of phrase because most of the success stories we hear um, ultimately are a question of meandering relationships, kind of just making connections, finding points of commonality, getting somewhere. Um, so I want to kind of dive into the question of your first startup and uh, your founder's journey, because I'm certain that there will be something about it that, uh, that relates to both of those topics, meandering relationships and drawing from diverse paradigms. So when you invented NetAcuity IP, and uh, really geo-targeting or geo-targeted ad serving was not really a thing, right? Um, so in my experience, this kind of white space entrepreneurship story, it's relatively rare and hard to come by. So before we get into the success of the company, I wonder if you could share insights into that intersection of problems uh, that sparked your realization that such ad serving was possible and that there was a genuine need. Yeah. So um, what's interesting, though, is that I did not invent that for ad serving. Um, ad serving is only one application of all the many um, that IP geolocation does. And so uh, so to take back to, to kind of 1999, this was March of 99, uh, March 17th of 99, to be exact. Uh, you always remember that that uh, first idea that first time. But um you know, I was actually in the process of trying to figure out what I was going to do next. I had gotten tapped out at the company I was working for. Um, I was at a point in my career where I would go to work and I had no questions for anybody else, but everybody would come to me with questions. Like I knew everything about the systems that we were selling. Like there, there was no discovery for me anymore. There was no surprise. It was just rote work at that point. And that's not interesting and exciting to me. Um, it's that learning and the discovery. So that night, March 17, 99, I happened to be home 
This is back in the dial-up days, which is important. And I hit two websites. I hit the FedEx and the IKEA website. And the first thing both of them did was ask you what country you were in before they showed you any content. Now, again, I was on dial-up, which was slow. And it just struck me like, this is so dumb, right? When we go to the store, we don't say, hey, by the way, I'm going to do English and dollars. Are we cool with that? Right? Like that is automatic based on where you're located, right? You can't land yourself in the middle of Spain and be like, English and dollars, we're good, right? And like, that's not going to happen because that's not the accepted mode of like operations there, right? So we do that in the real world with geography. Why would we not do that on the internet? That was my thought. And so I started poking around and say, well, how, how can I fix this problem? And I said, well, you know, I think I could do based on IP address and, and just did some toying around that night and said, yeah, yeah I, th I think this would work. Uh, the next morning I went in and I had been talking ideas. This was the go-go days of the internet, the dot-com bubble. Um, I'd been talking to the company's chief counsel. Uh, we had become friends because, again, meandering relationships. I had uh, to step back a little bit. Uh, yeah, I do weird things. Uh, the company was about to throw away some equipment that was quite valuable because we couldn't find a use for it. Um, and I told them, no, no hang on to it for me and let me see if I can sell it. Because if I can sell it, I want to use the money to buy a foosball table, okay? I ended up finding a buyer. This was Hardline Cable. We were a you know, cable telephony company. Sold that cable. It was worth probably five or $6,000. I think I got two out of it. But to me, it was like, that's found money, right? I, they were going to throw it away anyways. It didn't cost me anything to buy it, whatever. Got the two grand, got the foosball table. Well, once I got the foosball table uh, and everybody loved it, my team, we had a good time playing on it. I realized I needed money for maintenance. So I started up a candy store in my cubicle. I'm actually getting to the point where the, the council is uh, friends with me. Uh, meandering story as well. So I started going to Costco, doing Costco runs, buying candy for cheap and selling it at a markup, uh, not for me to make money, but to have a, a maintenance fund for the foosball table. Well, the chief counsel of the company found out about this and he kept coming by my cube and he would buy those, uh, you know, those red hots, those really hot uh, candies, yeah. He cannot eat those, but he loves them. And so he would buy them. And then you know, I think I was selling them for like a quarter a piece and he would just drop in like $2 or $5 for one, whatever. Like he was overpaying. So we became friends like this. And then we started bouncing around ideas. So the next morning after I came up with this idea, I, I approached him and said, hey, I, I got this idea. I think this might be something that we could do. And he was like, well, it sounds like a good idea, but somebody's probably either, either done it or it's not possible to do. And so he called up his brother, who was a West Coast guy, who also called up one of his friends, Ben Lutch, who uh, was one of the founders of Excite, if you remember Excite from back in the day. And both of them said, yeah, it's possible to do. We don't know anybody do, doing it. And if you can get it done, it's worth a lot of money. Um, and so there we were. We were off to the races uh, right there. Uh, raised a little bit of money um, almost immediately after that through an angel investor had basically nothing, no product, no service, no customers, no nothing. Um, raised about $100,000 right away. Started building it out for the rest of 99. At the end of 99, started raising uh, the angel round of a million and a half is what it ended up being. And then I quit my job the first working day of 2000. And two weeks later, I was the first employee of the company. Huh. Uh, so, you know, I've heard a lot of good sort of meandering relationship stories, but I got to admit, not a lot of them uh, have to do with like surplus cable, uh, <laughs> upsold up Costco candy, uh, a red hot eating legal counsel and uh, foosball tables. So <laughs> I think that's a perfect illustration of, uh, of what it takes sometimes, the hustle to get it done. Um, so that's the beginning of it. But what's interesting in this case is that you are also the technical mind behind kind of building the, uh, the NetAcuity software. So a lot of uh, founders don't have both that kind of vision and see the, the white space and then can also develop it. So once you had that initial uh, confirmation of problem solution fit and you were seeing you know investment, Walk us through what it really took to build this software solution and then build the company uh, until the point you kind of got to an ex a successful uh, exit. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, a, a lot of hard work, a lot of hustle uh, is what it was. Uh, you know, even though I am technical, um, I know I'm not the best developer, uh, software developer out there. Um, and so very quickly, I exit and, and leave it to people that are way better than me to kind of build the code base and, and make things better. So, you know, a lot of where my skill set lies 
is relating to customers and engaging them and getting them excited and telling the story. Uh, I think that's probably the number one skill that a successful entrepreneur entrepreneur needs to have is being able to tell that story in a way that uh, gets people excited and, and make sure that you're getting the feedback and telling the story and pivoting the story to make sure that that person that you're talking to um, really kind of hooks in and the, the story resonates with them, right? Like if you're just vomiting on somebody, like the whole story, that's not going to get you anywhere, right? You need to tell them a little bit and have them start asking questions because that's how you figure out what do they care about. And then you can start tailoring the story based on that. So I ended up spending a lot of my time um, in that, in, in doing business development, sales, uh, all of those things, but then also thinking about the product, thinking about what we needed to build, how we needed to build it, um, and how do we get there, and, and how do we innovate and, and continue to stay forward on things. So, you know, I would still get my hands dirty. I, I did things that um, kind of pulled back from when I was uh, younger, and I, I used to have a modem and do BBSing, and if you remember that, like the the movie War Games with Matthew Broderick, um, where it would just dial, like I took an idea from that and actually built out how we would know where IP addresses were. I, I got to the point where I had built something where I was dialing different points of presences for uh, ISPs and just connecting to find out what IP address I had and then disconnecting. Um, and funny little side story on that is that there was, this was the dot-com go-go days, there was a internet startup uh, that did uh, long distance phone service. And their whole thing was for every dollar that you spend on long distance, they would give you a dollar's worth of giftcertificates.com certificates. So the way I had set this up, we signed up for that service. The way I had to set up was that every connection I made would count for one minute's worth of long distance. And in a minute, I could actually do three calls. So every minute of this calling, we would do three minutes worth of long distance. We would get charged for that. So we were spending thousands of dollars a month on long distance calls, but we were also getting thousands of dollars a month in giftcertificates.com dollars. And I was using those as giveaways for employees, for doing good things, buying tchotchkes for the office. We bought a Ibo robotic dog for the office. Like we were buying all kinds of stuff because we were gonna spend the money anyways. Uh, years later, I heard that that company actually had meetings about us and we were part of the reason why they didn't do so well and eventually went away. Oh. <laughs> I'm very sorry if anybody out there is a, a member or was a member of this company. Uh, right. But one, one person's business solution is another person's business problem, right? Exactly. And so, you know, it was taking some of these ideas and things that I'd learned over time and figuring out how can we use them and leverage them to create a good you know, stable of information for us. And, and I don't think any other competitor did anything like that. Um, I only talk about it now because it's not really a thing anymore. Uh, and so I'm not giving away any business secrets by talking about this, this is 20 years later at this point. Um, but, you know, I think you've got to really look at businesses in a way that um, people inside of those industries don't, right? Like a lot of the great innovation ends up happening when you have people that are not in those industries come in and try to solve a problem that's in that industry because they are not programmed to be like, hey, this is not the way we do it or we only do it this way. You know, those kinds of rules don't exist in people like me that come in from other experiences in other industries. Sure. And that's a, a really valuable insight we hear a lot. Uh, and it goes back to that question of borrowing from one uh, from one marketer, one uh, you know sector to to move into another and uh, bring with you these different insights that are strange and new uh, in that setting and can yield new insights. Um, I'm, I'm secretly glad to hear you didn't spend it all, all those uh, coupons on candy and foosball. You could have outfitted <laughs> the whole city with foosball tables probably at the rate you were calling. But it is fun to hear, uh, you know, somebody who is known as an established tech entrepreneur talk about the dial-up days and the ways you had to work that into uh, the way that you were doing, you know, basically intelligence work, that you were gathering data. Um, it's, it's a great story. At that point, you had definitely proven that you could succeed as a tech entrepreneur. Uh, and you knew how to tell stories, obviously, because you'd raised funding, uh, you'd had a successful exit. Um, and if I get my timelines right, though, your next big projects were really largely in support of other aspiring entrepreneurs. So you helped to found CreateX at Georgia Tech. Uh, you founded the Prototype Prime Incubator in Peachtree Corners. Uh, and you founded Startup Riot. 
So I'm wondering if you could share some of the reasons that you moved in this direction, uh, as well as insights into each of these programs that might be of interest to Atlanta entrepreneurs listening to this program. Yeah, so the, the first one right after the exit, so we exited in, in uh, 2007, um, so about a year after I graduated from Emory. Uh, so the first one I did was uh, in 2008, I launched Startup Riot. And that was really, for me, it was a way of giving back and helping out other entrepreneurs and giving them something that did not exist for me. So I, I started thinking about, you know, how do I make this better? How the experience was not great for me. Um, and, and how do I make it for better for other entrepreneurs after me? So I designed Startup Riot in such a way that um, I still probably have a lot of people in Metro Atlanta that don't like me because of it. Um, but one of the things that I did was I screened all of the attendees and I did not allow service providers to come uh, because I had seen it. Now, no disrespect to service providers, you know, the lawyers, accountants, recruiters, consultants, we need all of them. But we just don't need them in those early, early stages of startups when we're trying to get these startups off the ground. And so I had seen all these other events where you would go as a founder and like 90% of the people that you meet are people trying to sell you stuff. And again, you need that stuff, but you don't need that stuff when you don't have any money. Uh, you need to get connected to people that are going to be customers or going to be investors. Those are the critical areas. So I limited attendance at Startup Riot to startups, investors, uh, you know, partners of some sort, people that might be clients, and then um, people that were sponsoring the event, uh, and then and then folks from you know city government, to, you know those kinds of folks that are supporting entrepreneurship. Um, so you could get in if you were a service provider by being a sponsor, uh, but you had to be a good sponsor. Uh, you couldn't be somebody that would come to the event and try to just gather up business cards from everybody and annoy everybody. Um, you know, I had some of those in the early days and I, I very nicely fired them as sponsors because that's not what I wanted to build. The, the whole goal of the event um, was really not to make money. It was to hopefully break even, uh, but really give a great experience. So uh, I pioneered kind of the three minute four slide presentation. Uh, we started that, we started with, uh, it was interesting when I launched the first one, um, even I was told, I said, I'm going to do 50 startups all throughout the day. Um, and I was told, oh, there's not 50 startups in Atlanta. There's no way you're going to get 50 startups for this thing. And, you know, I hit 50 and then I hit 60. And then I think I was at like 63 or 64. And I was like, I got to cut this off. This is just too many startups. I can't get them all in, um, you, you know, even at three minutes. And so it, again, like proved to me, people don't know what they're talking about, right? They're, they're going to tell you things. And, and some of it is because, you know, they have a, a worldview that's wrong or they don't want you to see, succeed or, or whatever it is. But if you've got this belief that you're trying to do something for good, then just go and do it. So I ended up running that for seven or eight years. We did two years in Seattle as well. Um, lots of great companies came through there. There's a lot of companies here in Atlanta that um, had gone through there when they were just starting like Pindrop and Cabbage and Pardot and, and, you know, a lot of companies like that that are offer up in, in Seattle was one when they were just starting, they were like two or three founders and now they're a multi-billion dollar company. You know, so a lot of companies that, that were very early on now, I don't say that any of these companies were successful because of Startup Riot. We just gave them a platform for a few minutes and, and just kind of helped them along their way. Um, the success is obviously all theirs, but this was really for me about um, helping and giving back because I was very fortunate in what happened with me in Digital Envoy. So, you know, I built a name and a reputation because of that. Um, you know, for most people, it was good. The investors and the uh, founders love me. Some of the service providers, not as much, um, which is, you know, if you're not going to like me for that, I'm okay with that. You know, it's fine. Um, and so that led to, you know, my reputation being what it is. And then people asked me to come speak. And that's what led to the Prototype Prime um, experience. I was on a panel for ATDC. And, you know, I'm after doing all this stuff, I when I'm on panels, I kind of, I, I tell you honestly what I think doesn't mean you have to listen to me, right? And I'm going to tell you what I think. If you don't agree with me, you don't have to do anything that I have to say. I'm just some, I'm some random guy. Uh, it doesn't really matter what I have to say. If you, if you are of strong beliefs with something else, then, then do that. So I did that during the panel. I said some incendiary things about what I think um, people should be doing to support entrepreneurship. Um, and apparently uh, the mayor and his wife uh, liked what I had to say. And that kind of led to me being asked to kind of co-found uh, Prototype Prime and you know, like I told the story previously about Steve, you know, that, you know, somewhere along the way, somebody introduced me to Steve and, you know, I took the meeting. It's 
we started chatting and that kind of led to uh, being involved at CreateX as well. So, you know, for me, it's, it's really easy uh, for people to get me excited and want to be involved if we're talking about, you know, anything around startups or innovation or, you know, empowering people to, to create jobs and, and economic development. Like that's all fun stuff. I think it has a real impact. Um, and not to say that I know everything about all that stuff. I don't. Uh, a lot of the stuff I have stumbled into um, and I kind of have ideas and they may be right or wrong, but uh, I can give my perspective and, and try to help other founders as much as I can. So that story is interesting on a lot of fronts. One of the things I think it points to is the fact that people consistently um, underestimate the number of startups and the number of good ideas and the number of kind of entrepreneurial uh, endeavors in this city. And um, I'm sure that these sorts of incubator environments, many of which you've helped to found, have put you in touch with a broad cross-section of Atlanta innovators and entrepreneurs. And so you've seen why this city is, is starting to be known as a leader uh, in so many sectors. It already is, of course, in financial services, transportation, healthcare, media and communications, to name just a few. But outside of FinTech, it's not normally recognized as a leader in tech. And so after speaking with folks like Karen Cashin, uh, also an Emory alum and CEO of Tech Alpharetta, folks at Atlanta uh, Tech Village and now with you, I'm struck by the fact that Atlanta deserves to be better recognized for its tech success stories. And so I'm wondering if you could name other tech success stories you would add to the list and reflect on this question of whether the city's getting the attention it deserves and what might tip the, va the balance uh, in its favor. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many, right? I mean, there's um, Calendly, right? The, there's MailChimp that just exited uh, stored, which we just talked about. Um, there's even Intercontinental Exchange, right? They're a, I, I don't know how many years old now. They are 18, 19, 20 years old at this point. And they bought the New York Stock Exchange. I, I, I would bet you, and I talk to people around Atlanta all the time, and we start talking about startups, and, and I ask this question, Do, did you know the New York Stock Exchange is owned by a now probably 20-year-old Atlanta startup? And most people are like, no, I, I didn't know that, right? So, I think that points to what the problem is. And the problem is not that we don't have um, a good startup ecosystem. I think we have a great startup ecosystem. I think it's just not well known, which is, which is to your point. I think the reason why it's not well known is a political issue um, and not political by, uh, by uh, Democrats, Republicans, political by how fractured we are geographically. So we have 159 counties in Georgia. We are second only to Texas. Uh, and by by law, we can have no more than 159 counties, right? We years ago we had two counties that merged, and then instantly another county split to get us back to 159. So I think this is actually the problem. Uh, if you look at um, cities like LA and New York, um, we have a population. We have about six million people in the metro Atlanta uh, area, right? And so when you say city, uh, my thinking of city is always the metro. I don't think of city of Atlanta because I don't live in the city of Atlanta. I live in Duluth, um, but I live in Atlanta when we go outside of Georgia, right? When people ask you where you're from and you're not here, you go Atlanta. When you're here, you say Duluth or you say, you know, Brookhaven or you say whatever, right? Um, but I think that's part of the problem is that we have this this kind of split. You know, the mayor of Atlanta is only the mayor of about five or 600,000 people, right? So, and you even look at the salaries and the salaries are different. The, the mayor of Atlanta gets like 140 something thousand dollars a year. I think it's $147,000 a year. Whereas the mayor of LA gets 200 and uh, almost double. It's like 260, $260,000 because there's a mayor of a lot more people. And so that then points back to the problem, right? You're, the mayor of Atlanta maybe talks about MailChimp because they're in the city, but they're not going to talk about Intercontinental Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange because that's in Alpharetta. That's not my city. That's not you know something that I need to be concerned about, right? So I think that hurts us as a metro because we don't have anybody that's advocating for the whole thing, right? You can't talk to, you know, well, maybe the governor's supposed to, but the governor's responsible for the whole state. So what's your political leader that's responsible for all of Metro Atlanta? There isn't one. And there is no then cheerleader for talking about all of these things. They only talk about the things that in, are inside of their lines. And as regular humans, you and me, we don't ever think about those lines, right? When you drive from one place to the other, like I, I, half the times, I don't know what county I'm in or what proper city I'm in. I, I just do things, meet people, go places, and I don't think about all of those things. 
but politicians do think about those things and they're only going to talk about the things that are inside of their lines. And I think that hurts us overall. And, and I think that's the challenge that we have because, you know, yeah, we, we do have some organizations like the Metro Atlanta Chamber that's supposed to be over the whole thing, but you know, their job is not really to solve this problem for all of startups or anything else like that. We don't really have anybody that tells that whole cohesive story of everything that's going on, right? Like up until recently, Emory wasn't even in the city of Atlanta, right? And and just finally got petitioned and became a part of the city of Atlanta. Okay, so now Emory's in Atlanta, Georgia Tech's in Atlanta, but, you know, other things are not in Atlanta. You've got GGC, you've got, you know, you've got Oglethorpe is not in Atlanta, like you, or maybe Oglethorpe is in Atlanta. See, I don't even know where the lines are. It makes it so hard, right? Like, why can we just not have the lines and have somebody that, is passionate about the whole thing and cares about the whole thing to promote us all as one big thing. That's what we need. I mean, that that is a really interesting insight and not one I've heard before. Um, you know, I come from, I grew up in Colorado, which is a bigger state that has uh, fewer than half as many counties. And l the population is really in just a handful of them, yep. right? the yep. state's entire population. So it's much easier probably to tell those broader stories. What do you think would be the solution? Like what sort of, of official would this be and where would it reside? Because it seems like there must be a solution uh, at hand or there yeah. could. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a it's a pretty obvious solution, but I don't think it's easily achievable. Um, and I, you know, so a lot of times when I go into projects now, I think about the hundred year plan, right? Like what do we want this to look like and how do we want it to survive a hundred years from now? And and I think that's useful in a in a, example like this because it takes you out of the, the equation, right? Because a lot of times when we talk about things right now, it's the egos that get involved. Well, if we're going to do that, I want to be the person in charge. Well, you know what? In a hundred years, you're not here. So uh, we can take that ego out of the equation and say like, okay, what's the ideal scenario? So if we're talking a hundred years from now, what I think the right answer is, is that I think there should be one count. Like in LA, there's a Los Angeles County that encompasses the massive portion of LA, right? There's still some suburbs that are outside of the county, but that's what I think we need to get to. I think we need to get to a political division where Atlanta, the city, is the entire thing. You might still have neighborhoods that have these names like Duluth and Brookhaven, whatever, but they are politically a part of one giant city. I mean, think about the economic uh, ability of a mayor that then is controlling the finances of six, uh, a, a tax base of six million people, right? Six, over 60% of the, the state is in this metro Atlanta area and, and we're not able to accomplish things, right? We're not able to effectively coordinate uh, like any kind of infrastructure projects. Like it, it's just, it's painful. We, we spend more money in that overhead of, of kind of managing these things because we have so many divisions and so many different groups that then have to negotiate and do all of these things that if we had somebody that actually cared about the whole thing, was responsible for the whole thing, I think we could do a better job of telling the story and then not have things like, you know, the Braves move from downtown to Cobb County. Like, I mean, you know, maybe it was better for them or whatever, but you know, as a, as somebody that lives, that, that's a Georgian, like not even Atlanta, let's call it a Georgian. It really didn't make sense. Right. I mean, it ends up being good for Georgia state because now they've gotten a lot of land and, and doing great things. Like I think as a side effect, maybe it's, it's become a great thing, but in the short term, it didn't really make a lot of sense for us uh, as a city or as a state. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And, and it also, I got to say the customer experience, uh, of getting in and out of the new stadium, <laughs> but we'll we'll set that aside. For now. Um, so, uh, this idea of a hundred-year plan is fascinating um, because you're exactly right, right? Everyone, once a new initiative is announced, everybody wants to put their stamp on it. They want to have a certain sense of ownership, uh, and that's an interesting way of thinking about it. I wonder, as you look ahead, but also as you look at today. There are so many sectors where Atlanta's efforts really, I think, deserve to be better known, especially efforts in kind of innovation that they're driving within these sectors, not just the size of the sector already. Um, and I wonder if uh, you could speak a little bit about uh, the other sectors where you think Atlanta's efforts deserve to be better known and what you think we can all do to help build that reputation and spread. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they're all over the place. Um, I mean, I think we've got a great uh, industry in like consumer consumer packaged goods, um, obviously anchored by Coke, but there have been a lot of upstart uh, brands in, in food and drink that have started here. 
uh, in Atlanta. I remember this one years and years ago called Why Nate. Um, I think they've exited now, but you know, there's been a lot of interesting stuff in that area. Um, in communications, we've got Cox, obviously, which has done a great job of being very involved in the startup space. They funded both of the Techstar programs here. Uh, they're also involved in Engage Ventures. Um, you know, I think Engage in particular is actually a, a very interesting one. And I talked to founders in all other places and I talked to them about that and they're all like, oh, this is very interesting and might be a program that they want to apply to because I, I don't think I've seen another venture firm that's had corporate partners as, as limited partners with the whole goal of the startups that go through the program to have them as customers, right? Like that's the thing that I wish existed when I did my first startup uh, because I had some VCs that had great limited partners that I wanted introductions to, but they would never make those introductions because they were always scared about being cut out of the deal. That's not the principle with Engage. Engage, they make the introductions and then they get out of the way. They're like, you don't need to involve us. Like, let us know if you need our help. You know, if something good happens, it's nice to know, but you go do your thing and, and uh, we're happy to support you. Like, that's that philosophy that I think we really need and and kind of, um, you know, like you, I'm not from uh, Georgia originally. I'm from Kentucky, uh, but I've been here since 89. Like, I, I'm a very diehard Southerner and I, I strongly believe in this uh, ethos that we have of helping one another. Uh, and that's what Engage to me has. It's it's that like, look, we're going to have you come in and be part of the portfolio and we're going to do whatever we can to help you succeed uh, because it's good for all of us. Um, so, I, you know, I think we've got some organizations like that that are starting to help. Um, but I think we've got like culturally, I think we've got a lot of barriers that are preventing us. Like one of the things that I hate personally is this whole ITP, OTP moniker that we have inside the perimeter, outside the perimeter, right? 1969 was a bad year uh, for Atlanta going forward because that was the year that the, the that 285 opened up. Um, and then it got reinforced years later when Bell South did the 404-770 split uh, just before the Olympics because they said they couldn't do an overlay. And then like two years or three years later, they did the 678 overlay, right? That Those things have reinforced this, like if you're inside the perimeter, you're cool. If you're outside the perimeter, you're not cool, right? Like those mental barriers are the things that we have to break down to be able to then be able to talk about some of the great things we have in fintech and logistics and um, marketing and all of these other areas that we've got. I don't think there's an area that, doesn't not exist here in Atlanta. We've got a startup that is in everything, a crypto, storage. We've got all of those things. And now you're seeing all these big corporates that are moving in um, and establishing presence here. There's a reason why, because there's a lot of great stuff here in Atlanta and nobody knows it because again, going back to the other question, we just haven't done a really good job of telling that story. Interesting. Well, I want to be mindful of the time for the folks in the audience. Um, I would say if you have questions for Sanjay, please go ahead and queue them up in the chat. Um, and I'm just going to ask one more, sort of transitioning from that broader ecosystem. Um, I'm curious some of the ways that it's empowered your work and your startup. So um, I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about the projects you're currently working on. So Mirage Data, Together Letters, and Edgewise. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I'll start with Edgewise. Edgewise, um, is a project we, uh, me, my co-host and I from the podcast, um, started a little while ago, realizing that we really enjoy doing podcasts, uh, and, uh, helping other people do them better. We've been getting questions for years about equipment and how do you do things? And we decided like, let's just do this all in for somebody, uh, for, for clients. And so we're helping organizations launch and relaunch podcasts. Uh, we've gotten a couple of big uh, clients on the books already uh, and looking to continue to grow. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that's happening in podcasting. Anchor and Spotify just announced some things today, actually, uh, around some of the things that they're doing around questions and answers and polls. Uh, and then they launched some advertising stuff as well. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of innovation happening there. And, and uh, if you can tell, I like to talk and I, I like to talk with people. So I think it's a good fit. Um, so that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Together Letters is a project that I, I also started with my uh, podcast co-host, and we started thinking about uh, social media and and kind of what we don't like about social media and uh, the challenges about it. And so, you know, one of the things that we don't like uh, is that it feels like everybody that's on social media is compelled to only talk about the good things, and they don't ever talk about when there's challenges or issues like that. 
Um, and part of the reason is that you don't want to do it on social media and have a permanent record of what you have to say, right? Like remember when we were kids and you'd be threatened by the teacher that it's going to go on your permanent record. I don't think I ever saw my permanent record, but I tell you, uh, social, social media is more of a permanent record than that ever was. And so what together letters is, is, is uh, creating groups, uh, where the group gets an email once a week, once every two weeks, a month or quarterly, and they get uh, asked to provide an update, a short update. And then those updates all get combined into a news newsletter that gets shared to everybody in that group uh, via email. So it's never published on the internet. It's never scrapable by a search engine anywhere, nothing. It's only on email, um, so it's private. And what's interesting is that we've seen people share very, like things that are going wrong and, and issues that they're having and get help and support from the people in their groups. Um, so people are using it for friend groups, family groups, alumni groups, um, coworkers, you know, whatever it is on a regular basis. The other thing that this does too is that you don't have to think about what platform you're gonna do this on, right? Oh, not everybody has a Facebook account. Oh, not everybody's on Twitter. Oh, not everybody's on GroupMe. Not everybody's on WhatsApp. Well, everybody's on email. Uh, everybody has an email address. So it works for 100% of the people out there and you don't have to think about it. Uh, and then the final one, Mirage Data, it's something I've been thinking about for 15 years and nobody else has built it. So I'm finally getting around to building this, but it's around helping protect email addresses initially and then other pieces of data so that if an organization gets uh, breached, then your data never becomes at risk. Uh, and so it's a, some interesting stuff I filed for uh, two patents. There's a third one that's being filed now. Um, two of two patents have already been issued. The third one uh, will probably be about a year or two out, but um, it's a lot of fun. And I'm working in the security space, which I've never worked in. And what's interesting is when I describe the, the solution to people um, that are either in the email space or the security space, they kind of laugh and they're like, this is so, this is so obvious. Uh, it's ingenious, but nobody's thought about it. And the reason is, is because they're all in that space and they only think of things one way. I'm not in that space. And so I'm like, well, we could just do it this way and this would work and it's working. So there you go. Th those are the three fun projects I'm working on right now. That's interesting. So uh, this ties, I think, in some ways into uh, the last question that's just come in from the audience. And this question of um, trying things a different way and looking at things simply, just trying to try something that will work. Uh, this person had a question about... Um, the ways that you you sort of come to this understanding. So it seems like making and learning from real world mistakes is a crucial component of being a successful innovator. School is basically designed to prevent you from doing that. Even with experiential learning, schools are trying to shield external partners from mistakes, which makes some sense. So how would you go about encouraging aspiring innovators to find some places to make mistakes? Yeah. I, I think um, I think there's still a lot of opportunities even in school. Like I, I reflect back to my time um, at Emory, and one of the things that I did was I became a part of the Leadership Academy there, and uh, the Capstone experience. And, and this was actually the reason why I decided to do Leadership Academy. The Capstone experience was two days at Quantico at Marine Officer Candidate School, um, and so we spent two days there. Um, getting yelled at by Marines, uh, going through the obstacle course, going through the le leadership reaction course, um, and learning from Marines. And, and I tell you, it crushed me. I am in no shape to ever be in the military. I never had a desire to be, but I love being with folks in the military because it gives you an opportunity to learn and think about things in a very different way um, than what's normal, uh, or you know, normal for the rest of us that are not in the military. It's normal for them. So. I think you can put yourself in this place of being able to try these different things, even if you're in school. Um, but if you're not in school, I think there's opportunities to do different things and try different things. And there's, I mean, there's really no downside to any of these things. Like if, if you think you want to start a company, start it, you know, uh, put, give yourself a budget, make sure you don't lose too much money on it um, and then see what you can accomplish. And you know, this was my calculation when I decided to quit my job for the first time and start my first company was like, look, at a minimum, I'm going to learn a lot and it's going to be a lot of fun. And then at the end of it, uh, if it fails, I'm still an engineer and now I've learned a bunch of stuff. Somebody's going to hire me. There's no downside. And if it succeeds, then I'm done, right? Like I, this is what I get to do and, and nobody to tell me no and I can do crazy things. Um, and, and I've gotten to do very crazy things. And, you know, 
a lot of times it's just saying yes to those opportunities. A couple of years ago, another kind of military story, I had the opportunity to fly up to Norfolk Naval Base and get onto a Navy cod and fly out about 130 miles out and land on the deck of the USS Enterprise and spend two days on the USS Enterprise just before its last uh, kind of ship ship out, uh, voyage out, um, tour of duty is actually what it is. Um, and you know, at one point I was a hundred and something feet away from jets taking off on the deck. Um, I've got pictures of it. It was an incredible experience and learning from some of these folks um, on the ship. I mean, there's over 5,000 people on the ship. It's a small floating city. Um, and it's fascinating. And, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of getting on propeller planes and, and flying 100 miles out. But if I hadn't, I, I would have missed out on all of those lessons and those opportunities to learn from people that are not like me. Um, and so I, I make it a point to make sure that I am not only in rooms where it's just people like me. I try to be in the rooms where there's people totally not like me because it gives me an opportunity not only to learn from them, but from them to learn from me as well about some of the things that are going into startups and, and things like that. Like it goes back to those questions of how do we do a better job of promoting Atlanta and innovation and startups is that we need to make sure that all of us here know those stories. And, and right now they don't. So you can't rely on people in Atlanta to tell those stories if they don't know it themselves. Um, and so, you know, push your boundaries, make sure that uh, you meet people that are not like you uh, and try things and knowing that like the worst thing that's going to happen is you fail and you just go back to what you were doing before. So all good. That's great. Uh, well, I would love to sort of wrap up there on this note that uh, we can all do a piece to uh, tell these stories and uh, really appreciate the stories that you brought today. Uh, and I know the audience has as well. Best of luck. Uh, with the current, uh, you know, startups that you have going. I got to say, Together Letters strikes me as uh, genius. I love simple solutions to complex problems. So I'm really curious how that one in particular turns out. Uh, but I hope you'll stop back by the hatchery and engage with students. And uh, best of luck with every, everything you have going on. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks a lot. I appreciate the time. I appreciate the conversation. Great. Thanks, Sanjay. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL. To hear additional episodes, search Might Could Stories on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about The Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.